90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, you know, <laughs> it's that time of uh, it's that time of year again. Yeah, you know, you're staying crazy. Uh, you've got some nice weather rolling through right now. There's uh, some storms north of you as we're recording that look windy. I know. <laughs> I I can't I can't wait till we get done recording so I can watch all the chasers that are on those storms right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the 24 hour coverage. I mean, you just don't understand weather until you've lived through, you know storm season in Oklahoma I think the television blows everyone's minds during storm season absolutely yeah so <laughs> uh get ready for that again well Arkansas is not even nearly that bad even though they have just as bad of storms but oh no that we our stations in northwest Arkansas are they pretty start... free with the cut-ins oh, okay starting to get amped up again gotcha yeah <laughs> uh how about you how's it going <laughs> Oh, having lots of fun. Uh, in addition to packing, I've been doing some cool uh, circuit board layout and design for some fun sensors that I'll get to talk about uh, pretty soon, I think, and also some signal conditioners that I'm using on some projects for my clients. Oh, signal conditioners. Is that for uh, wavy hair or manageability? What are you doing that for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're doing it for a uh, volume boost. Oh, okay, great. That's my chosen signal conditioner as well. Yes. <laughs> but we'll actually talk about that more in today's show. But first, we had some excellent feedback from last week's show. <laughs> oh, man. This was so great. And so this is from Catherine in Hamburg, Germany. And it looks like she decided to try out that acronym package with some pretty hilarious results. <laughs> right. So her master's thesis was Joined Influence of the Madden-Julian Oscillation and the stratospheric polar vortex on Rossby wave breaking in the mid-latitudes, which the acronym package suggested joke as the acronym. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> she said, so apparently my thesis is a joke. Not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> uh, it's because she's not far enough away from it yet, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. Um, I feel like Catherine, when I said mine, it had some pretty terrible things to say, too. But <laughs> That's true. I actually didn't put my dissertation title in. I should mm, do that. You definitely should. We'll talk about that one next, next week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we've had uh, several people on Twitter that are installing or have installed and played with the acronym package as well, though nobody else shared what their thesis was called. <laughs> They're too sad about it, I guess. I guess. <laughs> um, so what you've cooked up for us this week, John, I think I'm probably just going to go get a beer and, you know, watch some TV and just let you do the show. <laughs> no, no. So I've I've been working with several groups on improving their laboratory setup to collect data or to help them develop some new instruments. Okay. And I've been answering the same questions a lot which tells me that there's something that a lot of people aren't aware about. Okay. And we've sort of talked about this a little on here before, but how does your data become data when you're taking a measurement with an electronic device? <laughs> you know, you can tell me that over and over again, and I still don't get it because our data comes from, what, like super con conducting quantum interference devices what right but so i still don't the transducer, get it after that it's all the same i know but that's crazy <laughs> like it still blows my mind right it's all ones and zeros like how how is this a thing right and with talking to some people you know i'd say well as an engineer or somewhat of an engineer talking to a scientist i run into this problem a lot of, well, how, how precisely do you want to measure it? Well, as precisely as we can. How fast do you want to measure it? Well, as fast as we can cheaply. It's like, okay, well, we need some design constraints to work with here. <laughs> because most things are possible, barring breaking physical laws, uh, depending on how much money you have. But a lot of things that I think we strive to 
oh, you measure this to this precision either. Well, you really don't. Right. And you just think you do. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Or you don't need to measure it to that precision in the first place. Or you designed an experiment which the signal in the best case would be smaller than the precision of your instrument. So you have no hope of seeing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these are all problems that you can solve. That's a big bummer. That last one, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that one seems like the worst of it. Um, okay, so this is interesting because it's like that is what you do, right? At the very heart of it is, but you forget that all these very disparate looking equipments and everything else are just measuring the same thing when you get down to it, huh? Right, because in the end, to actually, and this is jumping towards the end of the notes, but we'll we'll get to it in more detail in a second. In the end, all you're doing is measuring a voltage. Yeah, that's mind-blowing. No, I don't care if you're measuring displacement on a fault, if you're measuring concentration of something in a geochemistry experiment, if you're measuring temperature in a petrophysics experiment, or if you're taking a scanning electron microscope image, it's all just a voltage. That's so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Like this is, I don't know if I can achieve this level of (laughs) transcendentalness about my data just yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that's crazy. So how do you start to answer these questions? Especially like, I mean, then this is sort of how are you going to move forward with your business of like people come to you with these things that you don't know anything about, but you do know about voltages and all the electronics that go with it. You know, even though you may not know about whatever weird biomedical instrument someone might want you to make or something. Well, exactly. And especially when a biologist is talking to me about what they want to measure. (laughs) I mean, I'm not trying to knock on biologists. Just tell me what you want to measure. I don't need to know why or the 20-year the lineage of this E. coli doesn't change the fact that I'm measuring a voltage. <laughs> I knew you are biased. That's why I threw that in there. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. So what do, where do you start? Well, and so this is sort of what I would say I bring as a, as a service, right? Mm-hmm. You can tell me what your science goal is. And I can come up with a lot of the engineering requirements for you. Right. Uh, because I know the science. So you might say, well, why do you want to share all this stuff? I want to share it because that doesn't really cut into what I need, right? If my customer knows more about the system, that's good for them and good for me. Right, exactly. Uh, and so I wanted to go through sort of the rough idea of how we take a physical thing and how we make it into a digital quantity that gets written to an SD card that some poor grad student has to trudge through a bog and get. (laughs) I've been in a bog. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's, that's exactly right and beautiful. So yeah, what do we do? There's this thing. Well, Uh, We actually just had an exam today, and I asked this, and it was funny because I didn't talk about it in class. We talked about the difference between weather and climate, and these are intro non-science majors. And then I said, how do we measure both of these things? Because I was so interested, yes, to see what people would say, having not really talked about it in class. Like, we talked about weather and climate, but not the measurement of them. So I'll let you know when I grade those, how that turned out, because this is interesting to me because so many of us don't know how you measure things. You put your stuff into this machine and you get back data. How did that happen? (laughs) And my problem with that is a lot of the companies that produce these machines do very, very good jobs of the calibrations and the corrections that are needed. So you have data that represents the real physical world. Right. But a lot of times the scientists may not understand that there's a very complicated set of calibrations and corrections that are going on. (laughs) And they try to operate the machine out of its design parameters and then take that data as real. And it's not. Right. (laughs) Which is terrifying, but probably more common than you would think, right? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, I, I would say second to typos and analysis scripts, misuse of equipment is probably the second most... Uh, uh, common cause of bad data. Yay, science. <laughs> so the first thing, you've got a physical thing you want to measure. And so you need what's called a transducer, right? Okay. 
that word means I'm transforming energy from one form to another. Okay. <laughs> yep. So, our so transforming quantity from one form to another. So there are really only a few physical quantities that we measure as scientists. Okay. So there are things like force, displacement, temperature, concentration, temperature, energy. Mm -hmm. yeah. energy. Yeah. Like th there are lots of subtleties on this. Okay. I'm, I'm using a load cell and I'm measuring how much uh, force I'm applying to something, or I'm using a pressure transducer and measuring the pressure of a fluid in my experiment. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the same thing. Right. Electrically. Gotcha. Or, or a I'm... magnetic field, which is just a, a subset of other measurement problems, right? So there are right, only a yeah, few exactly. physical constants that we're measuring. Everything you did in physics one. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> And what we need to do is transform them into something else that we can measure electrically because measuring distance electrically is hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So we need to transduce that. Or measuring temperature electrically is hard. Uh, so we use these transducers to do that. And some of the common transducers that I run into in labs of all kinds are things like thermocouples or... Mm -hmm. DCDTs, which are direct current displacement transducers, okay. uh, they measure displacement very, very accurately over generally a small range. Okay. So, like, they'll measure an inch of range, but down to a precision of a couple microns. All right. Uh, and then there are things like strain gauges, which are really at the heart of an alarming number of sensors. <laughs> <laughs> why do you say that well so you, you want to measure the pressure of some fluid going into your geochemistry reactor right mm -hmm. fundamentally the way most of those work is there is a metal disc and as you put fluid under pressure on one side of it it bends and you measure how much it bends with a strain gauge that's glued to the back side mm -hmm. And so based on how much that disc bends changes what the output of the strain gauge is, and that's all calibrated back to how many pounds per square inch you are putting on the fluid. Okay. It's also how load cells work. It's how your bathroom scale works. Right. Uh, lots of things use strain gauges because fundamentally we measure the deformation of some object. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. So you, you have a transducer of some kind, and there are many. And these transducers output generally only a few different kinds of things. Uh, <laughs> there are some more modern transducers that are uh, smart, we could say, in the fact that they speak digital output natively. Oh, okay. Instead of some physical electrical thing, right? Right. And so a lot of folks like these because you can go buy a pressure transducer that has a USB cable on the end. Mm -hmm. You gotcha. plug it into your laptop and the pressure pops up. Gotcha. Fantastic. That doesn't change the fact that inside that transducer, all of the things that I'm going to talk about next are still happening. It's just all <laughs> happening in one thing and all taken care of for you. So it's an easier thing to use. That's very interesting. Um, it's the same... I don't know if it's the same, but I will say my husband's a mechanic, right? And so um, he talks about all the stuff in the car now is what fly-by-wire. So it's like your brakes aren't mechanical anymore. Right. They're digital. <laughs> but that doesn't stop the fact that they still break, right? Exactly. Yeah, okay. I knew... And fundamentally, at the, some point, they have to be physical, right? Because you're slowing down. Right, exactly. Yes, exactly. But just not in the way... It, used to be right instead of having tubes filled with brake fluid mm -hmm. and hydraulic pressure transmitting now you mm -hmm. have ones and zeros going across a wire right exactly which is terrifying but seems to work so okay yeah <laughs> so some transducers will have a digital output which just means that all the things that we'll talk about later happen inside all right okay makes sense well generally they put out voltage or current though okay that seems like something I learned about 20 years ago. Yeah. And so voltage is, it's electric potential, right? Or difference in electric potential. Mm -hmm. 
between two points. And so you hook your multimeter up and you say, okay, this transducer at its full negative limit puts out minus five volts and at its full positive limit puts out positive five volts. All right. Or something like that. Yep. Um, another transducer that you'll see a lot puts out a current of four to 20 milliamps. Okay. Instead of a voltage. Right. But you can relate these. Right. And either of these, they're directly related to the physical thing that you're measuring. So in the end, you have a calibration factor that says something like 100 PSI per volt or okay. 10 degrees Celsius per volt. So, you know, okay, my voltage went up by two volts. So that was 20 degrees Celsius temperature change, let's say. Okay. So the current transducer is a little different because instead of putting out a voltage, which is really pretty straightforward to measure, uh -huh. they put out a constant current that is proportional and the voltage could be anything. It's whatever voltage is required to drive that much current through your sensing device. So that's different because that's always going to be producing something, right? It just, uh, the current changes? How, how are they fundamentally different besides voltage and current? Well, so the voltage always produces something too. You always have, you know, let's yeah, say you I have two so. volts out. Yeah. So the difference is if you think about Ohm's law, and we won't go too deep into this, I promise. So don't turn <laughs> me off yet, listeners. <laughs> no, I have uh, it written down. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, you've got E equals I times R. The mm -hmm. electromotive mm -hmm. force or potential voltage equals the current times the resistance. Mm -hmm. Though you may not think of wires having resistance, it does. It's generally some fraction of an ohm per foot for reasonable gauge wire that we use in a lot of lab situations. Mm -hmm. Now, if I have, let's say that I am working on a, a boiler in a power plant and I want to have temperature measurements. I am not going to have my little laptop right by the boiler with a two-foot piece of wire plugging in. Mm, yeah, probably not, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have, you know, a few hundred meters of wire running from wherever the sensor is on this giant apparatus to my control room. Uh -huh. That resistance adds up. And so what ends up happening is you start losing Lose voltage right. with longer wires. Right. So these voltage output transducers aren't good for long wire runs or noisy environments, electrically noisy environments. Uh, but the 4 to 20 milliamp transducers, no matter how long the wire is, they're going to make the voltage however high they need to to push, let's say, 12 milliamps out. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Now, you almost hit on the head earlier, though, of why is 4 the lower end. Why is it not zero to 20? Uh -huh. And that's because for, for a, you know, let's say your transducer, I'm, I'm going to pick on pressure again because it's easy. <laughs> let's say at zero pounds per square inch or zero kilopascals, your voltage transducer has an output of zero volts, let's say. But your current transducer has an output of four milliamps because it's 4 to 20. Right. Now let's say somebody nefarious comes up and snips mm -hmm. your sense wire. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, a grad student trips and a wire gets pulled out and nobody notices. Mm -hmm. You have no idea that the voltage one's not working. Yep, correct. Yeah. But when the current one goes to 0 milliamps, you say, oh my gosh, it's dead. So yep. this 4 milliamp lower end range is there so that you know as long as you're seeing current... The transducer is fine. The second you don't see current, there's a problem in your sense system. Ah, oh, so smart. That's so it's really so a nice smart. system. Uh, yeah, that just, it reminds me of RCM. We blew a filament the other day, and it's like you put it in there, and we've been having some trouble with users messing up the detectors. And so, you know, somebody was like, is this a detector problem? And you look down there, zero milliamps of current. Nope, not a detector problem. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's nice. That's good. And somebody found this out that these current transducers were better because their grad student tripped on the wire 20 times. Right. <laughs> and they said, I'm done with this voltage crap. <laughs> and really, for, for most lab apparatus uh, where you're just in a room, you know, you're on the other side of a wall maybe from it, uh, voltage transducers are fine. Right. You want to keep the wire runs as short as you can, partially for voltage drop, partially because, well, most universities are pretty electrically noisy. Mm-hmm. And long wires create antenna that add whatever electrical noise there is in the environment to your signal. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's like, you know, how you have to have your your um, headphones plugged into your iPod to actually get radio signal. If you want to listen to the radio like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got these transducers that are putting out something. Now, if it's a load cell, a strain gauge load cell, it's going to be a really small signal. Uh, maybe a few millivolts at full full scale mm-hmm. or a few hundred millivolts. And that's when your load cell. So you're putting, let's say you're putting five volts into your load cell and then you put... 30 tons on it, you might see your output go up to 200 millivolts. Gosh. That's it's crazy. very small. Yeah, and, that's crazy. And that's because of the mechanics of how load cells and strain gauges work. Mm-hmm. Uh, other transducers, like a DCDT uh, or a lot of the pressure sensors, they will swing pretty large. You may not have to worry about the fact that they don't swing uh, enough for you to detect reasonably. Mm-hmm. You can also have the opposite situation of you have a transducer that is hypersensitive and you need to attenuate it. <laughs> you have a transducer that for every micron you move this thing, you know, it's going to change 10 volts and you only have a zero to 10 <laughs> volt sensor that are a zero to 10 volt digitizer. <laughs> so you need down. to cut that down. <laughs> I mean, that's probably the better problem to have, right? Or no, I guess it depends. Um, it depends. It, it depends much. I hate to say that, but generally, no, it's the worst problem to have. Oh, okay. Because it's hard to do something with all that extra something, but it's easy to like apply gain to tiny things. Right. Okay. See, I paid attention. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, and, you know, of course there's always exceptions depending on the transducer and the setup and so on and so on. Right, but yeah. this is the need of signal conditioning. Like gain, and that's why I, I said volume me- boosting. Ah, there you go. Okay. And like gain, I just mentioned. Look at me on top of things. Yeah. <laughs> so signal conditioning generally consists of amplification or gain or attenuation. I mean, gain can mm-hmm. be less yep. than unity as well. Yes. Uh, offsets. So let's say, let's say your transducer goes from zero to five volts out. Okay. But your recorder will measure minus five to five. So now you got to do something to it. Well, so you could measure zero to five on your recorder, right? Yes, but you've got all that extra space, right? So use exactly. it up. Exactly. Yeah. So you amplify your transducer by two and offset it minus five. And now you're boosting your sensitivity. Exactly. Ah, excellent. See, I learned something listening to you. And there are other types of signal conditioning, too, that are less. So this is all analog signal conditioning. But, for example, I was dealing with a sensor that has a tachometer on it. So for every resolution, every revolution of a shaft, uh-huh. it puts out a pulse. Right. A five volt little square wave. Uh-huh. And so the frequency of that square wave tells me how fast the shaft is rotating. Right. So my signal conditioning in that case is... I count how many square waves go by in a second and produce a signal that is then proportional to how but fast the shaft is turning. Equals that. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So signal conditioning can be a lot of things. In these smart sensors, the signal conditioning is included in the sensor. And really, like DCDTs, pressure transducers, a lot of them now have signal conditioning built in. Mm-hmm. Or at least some signal condition. It may not be enough, but it's it's enough to get it to where you're not trying to shove a few millivolt signal across 10 feet of wire. But what do you mean by built in? Like something that you can 
change digitally. I don't want anything black boxing my data before I know what's going on. I want to turn the knob, you know what I mean? Well, so imagine, again, we'll pick on a pressure transducer because it's it, it illustrates a lot of these principles well. So your pressure transducer has a, a strain gauge on a bendable metal diaphragm. Okay. The signal from that strain gauge when you put the pressure transducer under full pressure might be 100 millivolts. All right. You don't want to try to shove that signal out your six feet of wire to your signal conditioner. Because it won't make it. <laughs> It'll make it, but it'll incur a lot of noise and you know if your if your environment let's say it's going to add engineers don't send me a hate mail about this isn't how you do link <laughs> budgets it, it's fine uh but let's say for illustration that your noisy environment is going to add two millivolts of noise okay if you add two millivolts to a tiny signal it's much different than adding two millivolts to a larger signal right yeah exactly so you amplify you do an initial amplification of the signal inside the transducer where your amplifier is sitting literally millimeters from the sensor okay so you you go ahead and boost that signal up and then send it out over the wires it may not be enough of a boost because they don't know what you're hooking it to right so they might boost it up you know by a factor of 10 or a factor of 100 and then give it to you and you can boost it or attenuate it or offset it to do whatever you need. Okay. I mean, hmm. Hmm. I still don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> I guess, I guess if it's just that little bit of boost, right? So you can well, still mess with it without compromising the signal or whatever. Yes. With, with caveats. Right. Uh, like, <laughs> You know, okay, well, maybe they'll put a filter in there to filter out high-frequency noise because this transducer looks at low-frequency stuff. Okay, so... A lot of those filters might induce a little bit of phase delay. Yeah. But maybe you don't care. Maybe okay. you do. <laughs> so it just, yeah, you got to get the right the right sensor for the right job, right? <laughs> the right sensor for the right job. A lot of times manufacturers won't tell you exactly what they're doing in the sensor, so you have to feed the sensor some known inputs and watch what comes out and make your own transfer function. That seems ridiculous, but I bet you have to deal with that all the time. Yeah, a lot of times they'll give you a calibration, maybe a frequency response curve, maybe not. Uh, so say you've got a pressure transducer and they tell you it's so many millivolts per kilopascal. Great. How does that calibration change when my pressure is oscillating at a kilohertz because yeah. I'm passing a sound wave through water? Gotcha. Okay. It's totally different. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah. So they're telling you a DC calibration and you're looking for a and frequency you're... dependent calibration. Right. There, yeah, how much you care depends on various things. And a lot of these pieces, so some signal conditioners will build in uh, a filter because you want to filter out the most common noise source is 60 hertz power line noise. Oh, mm -hmm. So a lot of times you'll put a little notch filter around 60 hertz. Okay. And that, that modifies your signal because if the signal that you're looking for happens to be 63 hertz, <laughs> your transducer is going to filter it out or your signal conditioner is going to filter it out. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so then the next stage is we've, We've done our homework. We selected the right transducer. We've applied gain and offset as we need to. And let's assume that now we have a voltage. So even if we had a current transducer, we've done our signal conditioning, and I have a signal that goes from minus 5 volts to plus 5 volts okay. coming out of a wire. Great. I need to get that into my computer so I can plot it in Excel. Okay. How do you do it? Well, you buy one of those ones with the USB thing on the end of it, man. <laughs> <laughs> no? Is that not? <laughs> well, you can. But uh, you've got to digitize it, basically, right? Right. So it goes through something called an analog to digital converter, or an ADC. How much longer are these things going to be in existence? 
Like, how much mm, longer are you going to need these? You know what I'm saying? How much longer till all this stuff becomes digital and you don't need this analog to digital converter? Well, so that's that's the rub, is never. Because at some fundamental point, there's always the analog there? Yes. What do you mean? Okay. So even if you buy a transducer that has the USB cable on it, mm-hmm. yeah. inside it has an analog to digital converter. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so th- these steps are happening no matter what. It's just how much of it's being hidden from you <laughs> and how much you're paying. Oh, this is like Apple versus Windows. I see. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, okay, great. Here's a shiny silver box that does everything that I can't touch any of the insides. Got it. Right. And really, so there's also the inverse of this, which is a digital to analog converter <laughs> that takes a digital signal and produces an analog voltage. Uh, that's kind of ridiculous. And you might say, well, why would you need that? And well, screens are a good example. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So my answer to that is because you've got this new piece of lab equipment that won't work with your, you know old computer or you need it to work with your apple 2e <laughs> or something right <laughs> i well, just had so, this conversation in the hallway i'm not kidding <laughs> let's imagine you've got a uh, an analog meter you know one of those ones with the pointy hands <laughs> my face <laughs> <laughs> and for, for those of you that have never seen one <laughs> oh <laughs> so sad so that can you could have hook your transducer up to that, and as you move your transducer or apply pressure to it, you can watch the needle move. You can also drive that needle from a digital signal. You could replay the experiment, if you will. In fact, a lot of pretty much all control systems, when you're affecting the physical world, you also need a transducer. It just goes in the other direction. Mm-hmm. It takes voltage and makes it into a physical thing. Right. like a motor or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you need, if you want to digitally control that motor, you need to take digital world and make it analog. Gotcha. So we're always going to go both ways. Always, always. Are you ready? Wow. You're ready to say, okay. All right. <laughs> well, because the real world is not digital. We'll see what the machines have to say about that when they take over. <laughs> <laughs> so everything in the physical world is continuous. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. it's analog. Uh, and then everything in the data processing, the digital world is, well, it's digital. It's non-continuous by definition. That makes sense. And so this is where analog to digital converters and the subtleties of them come to be very important. Well, yeah. Yeah, because what you just said, you know, well, yeah, you have to understand your data and what's happening to it. Well, and a lot of people say, you know, well, my Arduino has an analog to digital converter on it. And yes, it does. And good luck ever getting something published that use that <laughs> because it's not a very good analog to digital converter. <laughs> you, you can't just say, I need an analog to digital converter. Oh, here's one. <laughs> they have very different properties and there are lots of different types. We're not going to go into that. But what I really want to emphasize is bit depth and range. Okay. What do you mean by depth? So let's say that you're going to hook your load cell to your Arduino analog to digital converter. So that analog to digital converter is what we call a 10-bit ADC. Okay. It takes the voltage that it sees and it represents it as a number that takes 10 bits to represent. All right. So... Do you happen to know how what the range of a 10-bit number is in a computer? Oh, if I can get my CS1213 notes out, I probably do. <laughs> so it's 2 to the 10th okay. power tells okay. you how many mm-hmm. things you can represent, which is 1,024. Coming back to me. So you can represent the integer numbers 0 to 1,023. Right, because that first one is right. minus 1. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to take your load cell. Let's say it measures from zero to 60,000 pounds. So that zero to 60,000 pounds can only be represented 
by 1,024 unique values digitally. Okay, right. So you take 60,000 pounds, divide it by 1,024, and you get 50, 59 in round numbers. Okay, so... So each bit that changes on your analog to digital converter represents 59 pounds. Right. So that is the smallest change that you can measure. Correct. Is 59 pounds. Yep, that makes sense. And yeah, I sort of explained this like, think of taking your entire measurement range and chunking it up into boxes. Mm -hmm. And you right. can only say this belongs to this box. Right. Okay. So now you do have to match the, the range also. So your Arduino Uno takes the range zero to five volts and it chunks it up into 1,024 bits. So each bit represents about five millivolts. Okay. Now, let's say that you needed to measure zero to 60,000 pounds range, but you needed to know how you needed to uh, be able to count how many paper clips there are in that <laughs> mass. You're at a paper clip factory and you're measuring train car loads of paper clips and you have to be accurate to the one paper clip level. That sounds hard, but I'm guessing there's a way to do it. <laughs> right. And so this does sound crazy, but one of the world's most precise flow calibration laboratories is just down the road from me. And they have this scale in existence. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, it's sensitive enough that when they're calibrating it with test masses, they have to be careful not to get skin oil on the test masses <gasps> because it will throw off the calibration. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so all I think is this sounds expensive, but also awesome. Right. So let's say now that you jump way up. You, you say 10 bits isn't nearly enough. You go out to National Instruments or somewhere else, and you buy a 24-bit analog to digital converter. Okay. So now each number is stored by 24 bits on your system. Okay. It's not 2.4 times more accurate because exponentiation, right? Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> so you chunk up that same 0 to 5 volt range into 16,777,216 pieces. Okay, yeah. That's a lot. Right. So now, each bit represents 0. 0.035 pounds. Paperclip. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so now you, you didn't change your sensor at all. Right, yeah. The sensor is the same. The signal conditioning is the same. The only thing different is the thing that took that analog signal and turned it into a digital representation. That's mind-blowing. And so you can get you know, 8-bit, 10-bit, 12-bit, 16-bit, 24-bit. There are some 32-bit ones out there now. That's, uh, so, that's so crazy because it's like that, that cell has nothing to do with paper clips. <laughs> it all right. has to do with the digital thing you're doing to it to be able to store that difference of a paperclip. And so if you wanted to have a more visual representation of this, think about pixelation. Right, yeah. So pixelation is what results when we have a complicated image and we're trying to represent it with a few bits. Mm-hmm. So you can think of it as that. You're sort of defocusing your data. That is so cool. And you might say, well, why would you ever do this? Like, why wouldn't you just buy a 24-bit analog to digital converter? Money, money, money. Money, money, money. <laughs> and the, uh, the speed. Right. Okay. So if you're trying to digitize something at 100 million samples a second, mm -hmm. you're yeah. not going to do that at 24 bits. You don't got time for that. <laughs> it, it does not exist. Not to mention, that is an incredible amount of data. Yeah. A hundred million 24-bit numbers every second. Good luck finding even an SSD that's going to write that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So there are these trade-offs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, speed, the range. So 
does your analog to digital converter chunk up zero to five volts or minus 10 to 10 volts into that same number of bits? Right. And this is where you match the signal conditioning to the converter. Okay. So if my analog to digital converter, if it is on an Arduino and measures zero to five volts on its input, and I have a sensor that outputs minus 10 to plus 10, I have a problem. Mm-hmm. I need to attenuate that signal and offset it so that it ranges from zero to five. Mm-hmm. So you match the, the range and the resolution and the speed with what you need. Okay. And then here's where you sort of get into as well. Okay, I've got a thermocouple and I want to measure temperature ultra precisely. So I'm going to hook it up to a 24-bit analog to digital converter. Mm-hmm. Or I've got a DCDT that has a one-inch range. I'm going to hook it up to a, a 24-bit converter. Mm-hmm. So do you think that that DCDT is really going to give you 1 over 16,777,216 of an inch resolution? Okay. No. Uh, That's a theoretical resolution, right? Yeah. I mean, you wish, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Or do you think that your thermocouple is really going to give you, you know, millikelvin precision? It's not. (sighs) Sigh. (laughs) So you can have an analog to digital converter that is just its resolution is so much greater than that of your sensor, it's pointless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't hurt anything. I mean, you measure the sensor noise right. more accurately. Right, yeah, but but why? But who wants to do that? Why would we spend money on that? Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly right. Yep. So, I, bet so that now, gets, oh, right, good. I, I bet that gets asked a lot, though. You know, like, why don't you just do the most the most you can? Well, I mean, you said that in the beginning, right? Yeah. People so. say, I want to measure as accurately as possible. Right. Well, yeah. do you? <laughs> d- define, define the money bounds here. Because exactly. Yeah. Okay. There are ways to measure millikelvin level temperature changes. Right. And I've done them in some experiments. Mm-hmm. They're much more expensive than a thermocouple. Right, yeah. And if you don't need it, don't do it. Don't do it, exactly. That's hard to tell a scientist, I think. If you're trying to monitor, you know, I want to make sure that my lab wasn't 20 degrees warmer the day I ran this experiment than the day I ran this one. Mm-hmm. Don't buy it. You, you need a 10-bit converter, mm-hmm. maybe even an 8. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, is 1 degree per bit good enough? Okay, great, because you're not going to have a 1,024 degrees range in your lab. <laughs> I mean, you will if you're an experimental petrologist. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sorry, couldn't help it. (laughs) So you have to do a lot of matching. And this is where talking to somebody that's experienced in instrumentation is really helpful. Right. Mm. Because a lot of times I gone into a lab and I've seen a beautiful reinvention of a wheel that's commercially available for a third of the price. Oh man, that's really and sad n- to burst their bubbles, though. You know. Well, yeah, and it's not because they didn't approach it in the right way. It's right. because they didn't know that that solution existed. Right. Exactly. And it's one of those, you know, how do you Google for something when you don't know the name of it? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so this is where you come to me and say, "I'm trying to measure." this thing in my lab, I need to be able to resolve this kind of change. And I can go back and do all these calculations, or you can start investigating and do it yourself. So you have an apparatus that has a 24-bit analog to digital converter, and you have a displacement transducer that over a 20-inch range has a minus 5 to 5-volt output. Mm-hmm. What is And your model of your experiment says that you're looking for a 10-nanometer length change. Right. Can you see it? Yeah. Hmm. So you can do these calculations and know just because you didn't see it in your data doesn't mean it's not there. It might mean you just don't have the digital resolution to resolve it. Yeah. 
Wow. That's somewhat comforting. That could be an easy fix. And it's so, it's so universal. And I don't think anyone thinks about that. Right. And this isn't even talking about the control system side of it, which is a whole nother show that we mm. might even do next week. We'll see. <laughs> um, but so now you've got all of these numbers sitting on your disk and they're digital numbers. Okay. So let's say you're, let, let's go with your Arduino example, because for some things that's absolutely fine. Right. Um, okay. So you're measuring load with your 10 bit analog to digital converter. So you have a bunch of numbers coming out of that that are between zero and 1,023. That's great, except you don't care about that number between zero and 1,023. You care about how many PSI your sample is experiencing right now. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> so you apply a calibration. Okay. And this calibration would be, some, in the simplest sense, it would be a linear calibration of uh -huh. this transducer produces an output of 0.15 volts per 10 PSI or something like that. So then you take that digital number of, let's say, 512. Uh -huh. there's, there's some nice magic here, right? So yes, <laughs> another one of those powers of two. Uh, yes. So let's say we take 512 uh -huh. and we convert it back to a voltage. Well, that's going to come out to be 2.5 volts. Right half of the full range exactly now okay 2.5 volts how many and then you multiply do your do your very basic cancellation right mm -hmm. and you tell how many psi your samples under okay great that's the simplest case <laughs> but there are lots of transducers that do not have linear calibrations and that is where if they don't sometimes the manufacturer will build in signal conditioning circuitry to the transducer so that the output that you see is linear even though the fundamental output isn't so they wow. linearize it for you do you know that no only if you read the data sheets uh, okay interesting <laughs> and so that's where you know well yeah the transducer spits out data like okay the manufacturer says that it'll measure plus or minus one inch displacements and mm -hmm. you know well the the other grad student in the lab says yeah but it works from plus or minus 1.5 sure it does but it's probably only linear in plus or minus one after that the calibration becomes nonlinear. you can use it if you calibrate that hmm. but if you just assume that linear calibration holds you're kidding yourself and you're producing false numbers right yeah okay so a lot of times you get a calibration from the manufacturer. A lot of times you do calibrations yourself. And this is actually one of the things that I'm gearing up to do is start being able to do load cell and displacement transducer, like NIST traceable calibrations. Okay. So somebody could send me their load cell and say, we don't really know what this does. Uh, and I can calibrate uh, it and say, here is a chart of exactly what it produces. What it uh, okay. Gotcha. Uh -huh. And things like thermocouples. Uh, depending on how how crazy you want to get, uh, mm -hmm. most thermocouples, their output is fit with a 16th order polynomial. <laughs> Great. And that's for like, you know, garden variety plus or minus half degree stuff. Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> so That makes me real happy, I'm just going to say. <laughs> so calibrations can be simple. If they're linear, they can be very complicated if they're not. Gotcha. And you might have a transducer that, this is a really common one. Uh, in fact, I've seen a published article, and I gave a talk at AGU about how this article talked about, we've made a very cheap way to sense gravitational changes. Look, we measured the gravitational tide. There's a beautiful diurnal signal. Okay. And I thought, this seems kind of fishy. So I built the transducer, and I said, hmm... No, because I ran a tide model and it doesn't line up. Mm -hmm. So what it turns out is this transducer is also very sensitive to the humidity and temperature of the air. Oh. So once I created calibration tables for how its output changes with temperature, how its output changes with humidity, and how it changes with the covariance of those things. Then you got the tide signal. 
Well, no, then I got a flat line. Uh, okay, it wasn't okay. sensitive at all. Oh, interesting. So what they effectively measured was the cycle of their building's HVAC scheduler. <laughs> nice. And my point, this, is not, this is not a peer-reviewed paper. Yeah, uh, yeah. But you can really fool yourself because uh, take a, a hot wire anemometer, for example, from a meteorology uh, mm-hmm. view here. So it's a little wire that you pass an electrical current through and it heats up. The faster the wind blows, the more of that heat gets advected off. Right. So you pass a current through the wire in the simplest version, and you measure the temperature. And so the lower the temperature of the wire for the same current going in, the faster the wind's blowing. Mm-hmm. But it totally but depends on ambient temperature. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yep. So you have to calibrate not only that, but you have to calibrate the temperature as well. This is why, you know, in a lot of uh, experiments or a lot of instruments, you put a set of standards in every time to go ahead and calibrate what is the known output of this machine for this known input at the current laboratory conditions. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. And I mean, it can even be because machines age. Mm -hmm. For example, my laser cutter, the laser tube ages. The output of the tube for the same input current changes the longer I've used the tube. So you can calibrate it by firing it at a little black puck with a temperature sensor in it and seeing how much it heats it up. And I say, okay, now when I tell the tube to put out 60 watts, I'm only getting 58 now. Mm -hmm. So I calibrate that out. There's an aging factor in that calibration. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. So calibrations can get really maddening. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It sounds like it already. I prefer a sheet that I get from the person I buy the equipment from. Yeah, and you know most of those are traceable in some way mm-hmm. uh, through fundamental or transfer standards, mm-hmm. and it's just fine. Yep. Yeah. But these are all things as the scientist when you're taking your equipment out of its designed parameter space, and you're like, "But look, I'm getting data." You're getting data, but it probably <laughs> is meaningless. Uh-huh. Oh man! And somebody else has to realize that to call you out on it. So that's real scary. And I always felt bad as a reviewer of scientific papers because I would always say, I need more methods. <laughs> God. Like, uh. You didn't tell me anything about how you measure this. You said you hooked it up to a computer and measured it. Like, that's fantastic, but. <laughs> well, the answer, the answer is always, but we don't know how we measured it. Right. Or, you know, I mean, I, I have reviewed one paper in the past where I said, look, like, from what I can tell, Everything you interpret is digitization artifacts. Ouch. Um, because you can have, you know, say you have a frequency or a, a signal that contains high frequency components and you're sampling it too slowly. Yeah. Then you get something called aliasing. Yeah, exactly. And, I knew that one. I knew that one. <laughs> yeah. Or you can have, you know, we applied a filter to our data. We, we got the data and then we applied a low pass filter. How did you filter it? Because depending on what kind of filter you used, you could have time shifted that data forwards or backwards unless you used a zero phase filter. Yep. Mm-hmm. So. so there are a lot of subtleties here, but just having the, the concept that to measure something, it has to get turned into a voltage, scaled, offset, and then digitized to a number you are ahead of 90% of the Yeah, that's, I already feel like, yes, that's crazy. How few people probably know that. Right. And that's why when somebody starts explaining, you know, well, I'm trying to measure this and here's all the, here's all the, the science behind it. I, I really just need to know what voltage range I'm trying to measure mm-hmm. or what current range I'm trying to measure so that I can match an analog to digital converter, a signal conditioning tool, and a transducer to your application. Yeah. Wow. And in fact, if if you have me come to your lab, uh, <laughs> I, this is such a common problem. I've even made myself worksheets now that say, you know, okay, you write in 
what is the physical thing you're trying to measure? And then the next question is, what is the range of the physical thing you're trying to measure? The question is, how accurately do you need to measure it? And then there's a box that says, you know, okay, divide this number by this number and multiply here and bang. Okay, we need to look for a transducer that says it can do this. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Because this is literally what a lot of <laughs> electronics work is is shifting voltages and currents around to try to get the right ranges, the right gains, the right performance to do your task. That's beautiful. And much easier than I imagined it was going to be. Yeah. So that th there is your, your fundamental background on how things actually get measured. And so now no one needs to hire you, John. We'll just uh, do it ourselves. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> uh, no, I'll, I'll talk to you later about some more lab work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. Um, you know, but if you uh, if you connect all of these sensors to the internet, which is all the rage now, right? Uh huh. Then you have these Internet of Things devices, which uh, have become well known for their gaping security holes. And this may sound like a completely different topic, but it's not. It's your intro to Fun Paper Friday. Yay! I have to say, Tim, I got my baby cowbell in the mail, but I left it on my desk, so it will be used next week. <laughs> yes, so if you haven't watched on on uh, our various social media platforms, Tim has made some amazing little cowbells. I do not have mine yet. I think he's holding on to mine until uh, oh. I get moved in a couple weeks. Oh. It's amazing. It's so cute. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I think a lot of people were pretty mad at me for constantly using my baby cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> and then I did the big cowbell out just for comparisons. And yeah, it was pretty noisy yesterday on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, so it was great. This paper was sent in to us by listener Nick. <laughs> and it's called This World of Ours by James Mickens. Oh, man. I didn't understand this paper, but I thought it was very entertaining. So the this is a satire paper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the fundamental point of it is security researchers are focusing on the wrong things. Yes. Um, Which I would say I agree with in a lot of ways. Okay. I'm just, I'm seriously just going to let you talk about this because it was hilarious. But again, like, I don't even begin to understand what cybersecurity protocols are. So the, the, the crux of it is you, you look at talks from DEF CON or Black Hat or all these security conferences. And they're saying, well, we found a way. We've, we've talked about papers like this before, right? right? We found a way that by attaching a software-defined radio to a drone and flying by an apartment complex, we could in inject a worm into Philips Hue light bulbs that would let us control all the light bulbs in the building. Yeah. Yep. Or, you know, we can mine cryptocurrency on your light bulbs or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and he says, you know, that's great and all. But the fundamental problem is the number one password is still password. <laughs> like we're not solving the right problem of people don't have good security practices because we haven't made it easy in the right ways. We're solving all of these intellectually fun problems that affect a very small percentage of the population. That's so true, because how many people have a drone or the ability to break your light bulbs? Right. Yeah. And, you know, he, he has a great example in the first paragraph of, and I think this is true in any field, of he sees a talk announcement in his department uh, <laughs> that says something like, talk announcement, vertex-based elliptic cryptography on in-way Bojangle spaces. <laughs> and the abstract says something like it is well known that five-way secret sharing has been illegal since the protestant reformation <laughs> however using advances in polynomial time bojangle projections we demonstrate how a set of peers who are frenemies can exchange up to five snide remarks that are robust to bojangle chosen plain text attacks 
Uh, yeah, that gets you right there. Right. It's like, well, th- this is great, but again, this is a sub 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 subset <laughs> of a problem that generally nobody has. See, I definitely was more identified when he says he's got a friend that does triathlons, right? <laughs> And he says, I love this. When I encounter such a friend, I say, in the normal universe, when are you ever going to be chased by someone into a lake and then onto a bike and then onto a road where you can't drive a car, but you can run in a wetsuit? Will that ever happen? (laughs) And then he says, you know, well, triathlons are good exercise. And he says, that's true. Assuming you've made a series of bad decisions that result in you being humped by an amphibious Ronald McDonald. Uh, to which your friend says, how do you know it's Ronald McDonald? He's chasing me. <laughs> he says, open your eyes. Who else could it be? <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> so that really is fundamentally saying you're focusing on the wrong problem. Right. Yeah, because exactly. you find it enjoyable. Uh-huh. You find running triathlons enjoyable. That is the wrong problem from an evolutionary survival perspective. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it, this is... Like the satirical part of it, you know, with him mocking sort of these questions that are being answered. But I mean, this is what's happening, right? Because we have had several of these papers on here. And I thought that was very interesting. But also when it's put like this, it's like, my God, yeah, everyone's password is still password. Well, and I'm sorry we're reading so many excerpts directly from the paper, but we can't say it better. No, no. It's so good. You know, he says, the only thing I've ever wanted for Christmas is an automated way to generate strong yet memorable passwords. <laughs> Unfortunately, large swaths of the security community are fixed on avant-garde horrors, such as the fact that during solar eclipses, pacemakers can be remotely controlled with a garage door opener and a Pringles can. <laughs> it's definitely unfortunate that Pringles cans are the gateway to an obscure set of Sith-like powers that can be used against 0.002% of the population, which has both a pacemaker and bitter enemies in the electronics hobbyist community. <laughs> oh my god, it's so great. <laughs> I mean, it gets even better. <laughs> Because it says, if someone is motivated enough to kill you by focusing electromagnetic energy through a Pringles can, you probably did something to deserve it. Yes. (laughs) Oh, it's so great. He just keeps on going, though. He does. And I really enjoy, he he classifies all security threats into two classes, which are not Mossad and Mossad. I can't even even talk. This table is so beautiful. (laughs) Not Mossad. Threat. Ex-girlfriend, boyfriend breaking into email account and publicly releasing your correspondence with the My Little Pony fan club. (laughs) Solution. Strong passwords. (laughs) Organized criminals breaking into your email account. Solution. Strong passwords and common sense. (laughs) Mossad doing Mossad things. Solution. Magical amulets. Fake your own death. Move into a submarine. You're still going to be massaged upon. <laughs> massaged upon. <laughs> and this is where he says, you know, everybody's going on about HTTPS. And that, that's great. Uh, it's great to block out basic things. He says, but if your adversary is Mossad, you're going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> they are not intimidated by the fact that you employ HTTPS. If they want your data, they're going to use a drone to replace your cell phone with a piece of uranium shaped like a cell phone. And when you die of tumors filled with tumors, they'll, they'll hold a press conference to say it wasn't us as they wear t-shirts saying it was definitely us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it, this whole paper is great there, there are many things like this um you know we've talked about jargon and he'll say things like why are we parsing sentences like let k sub r w k sub t represent the semi kasparov food angle operation on the bipartite <laughs> x y a b z space uh, why uh, 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 uh. I love that he calls it a Caligula-style key party. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) That was really good, too. (laughs) And he compares this to saying, how does finding these tiny cyber vulnerabilities help 
when he was sitting on a plane next to somebody who asked why his laptop wasn't working, he hit the power button and noticed that it was sticky. And the gentleman said, oh, that's because I spilled an entire soda onto it. But that's not the problem, right? He said, I clearly don't think this dude is ready to orchestrate cryptographic operations on 2048-bit integers. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> He's got some Dune references in here, like every good satirical paper is going to have, right? Right. Um, but also, I love it at the end. He says, I cannot live my life in fear because someone named Freakus Maximus at DEF CON Hat 2014 showed you that you can induce peanut allergies at a distance using an SMS message and a lock of your victim's hair. If that's how it is, I accept it and move on. Right. <laughs> thinking about oh security God. is like thinking about where to ride your motorcycle. The safe places are no fun and the fun places are not safe. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna write this one out and hang it up. His his parting comment: I shall ride wherever my spirit takes me, and I shall find my gigantic Martian insect party, which was referenced earlier in the paper. And I will uh probably be rent asunder by huge cryptozoological mandibles, but I will die like Thomas Jefferson, free, defiant, and without a security label. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I really appreciate the spirit of this paper, right? Because. It's saying, even like we were talking some during the episode here, of a lot of times we spend too much time focused on the wrong problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can't see the forest for the trees, all that business. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have strong passwords, go change them right now, because that's the number <laughs> one thing that makes you vulnerable. <laughs> you mean using my pet's name for all my passwords is a bad idea? Very. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you would like to share with us what your complicated passphrase that you've made up based on some of the rules he's outlined in here is, <laughs> or information about your gigantic Martian insect party, <laughs> we would love to hear it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, send us that info, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Unless you're the Mossad, please don't send us anything. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. We're on the Slack channel, the Software Underground, and the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping us keep everyone in stickers and uh, keep us going. If you would like to support us, do so at patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 